Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today a special guest, Dr. Brian Loritz, who is a pastor, author, speaker. He's the president uh, and founder of the Kainos Movement, a teaching pastor at Summit Church over uh, out there in North Carolina, and the author of several books, including his latest release, The Dad Difference, and several other books he's written have to do with ethnic reconciliation in the church, multi-ethnic churches. And that's what we talk about in this podcast. It, he is a, as you'll see, I mean, just uh, as you'll notice, five seconds into the conversation, Brian just oozes with wisdom and humility and grace and and um, just biblical thoughtfulness, especially when it comes to the race conversation. And I very much enjoyed this conversation. I think it is um, something that, well, I think it's something every Christian should listen to. So if you... Um, if you feel the same, do spread this podcast around uh, to the far reaches of your social media corners. All right, without further ado, let's get to know the one and only Dr. Brian Loritz. All right, I'm here with uh, Brian Loritz. Uh, I mean, m- most of you are going to be familiar with Brian's name. Uh, written a ton of books, been a pastor, been a, um, I mean, just a just a leader in the country on so so many levels. But specifically, Brian, I, I wanted to have you on because you, you just have navigated the race conversation so incredibly well, and, and with like just grace and sensitivity and wisdom, and um, in, in a way that I mean, if if I could just be blunt, like I, in a way that I think can get through to for lack of better terms, the, you know, the evangelical church, primarily a white dominated evangelical church. Like, I, I just think you, you swim in those waters, you, you know, you, you know, the culture. And so anyway, uh, we're going to jump into that conversation, but thanks so much for being on the show. Can, can, can you give us maybe just a quick overview of who you are for somebody who doesn't, doesn't know the name Brian Loritz, the, the three or four out there that might not know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brian Loritz, I am, you know, teaching pastor here at the summit. Um, I, um, Love pastoring uh, the people of God, um, but also love kind of navigating uh, the intersection of the gospel and race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, wherever I go, I try to really emphasize that um, and this whole idea of what I call ethnic unity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think the, the vision the Bible paints is, is broader than diversity. I think diversity is just one step to a a much bigger vision, and that is uh, ethnic unity. And so I just think the Church of Jesus Christ should be on the front lines uh, of doing that. Uh, I think the multi-ethnic church is one of the strongest apologetics for the veracity of the gospel. So when people see people coming together who normally don't, Mm-hmm. Uh, within a local space, and they are loving each other. Um, man, I, I can't think mm-hmm. of, especially in today's culture, a stronger witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ wow. than that. So we just try to flesh it out yeah. um, within the context of the local church. And that's straight out of Ephesians 2 to 3. Well, I, right. I don't even, I recently read through it again, and obviously Ephesians 2, but that comes right, that's the first half of Ephesians 3, especially. But then that carries right over to Ephesians 4. And I, I more recently has been reading Ephesians 4, thinking the unity that, yep. that Paul's talking about there. We all talk about unity and all this stuff in Ephesians 4, but that unity is inter, it, it, it's, it's, 
you can't divorce the concept of unity in chapter four without ethnic reconciliation, right? And unity in chapter two. So you don't have unity until you have specifically ethnic unity. Is that fair to say or? Oh, a- absolutely. In fact, um, you know, most of the churches Paul started were multi-ethnic, right? right? Yeah. So, you know, whenever Paul walks into a town, he's got two questions. Where's the synagogue? I want to preach Christ to the Jews. And then where do the the, the Greeks or the Gentiles hang out, right? So Athens, it's Mars Hill. Uh, Ephesus, it's the Hall of Tyrannus. Um, you know, Acts 18, 4, when he's in uh, Corinth, it says that he reasoned or tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Um, and, and so I think that's another important thing that people hear me say, Preston, and that is what drives uh, Paul's quest for ethnic unity isn't really ethnic unity, it's missiology. Like like Paul is saying, I want to reach hmm. this whole town with the hmm. gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Uh, Paul has a gospel greed, yeah. so to speak. He wants to see everyone come to know the Lord and then put them into this beautiful thing called the local church. And so that's important for us here. You know, our church here is it's in the triangle, 12 locations. Mm-hmm. And we just say, listen, uh, what's driving this is missiology. We're 56% white in the triangle, 44% people of color in the triangle. We just want our sanctuary to look like our mission field. Wow. That's all that, that's all that we're, we're trying to do. But in today's highly politicized culture, Preston, if you, ju- if you just lead with language like diversity yeah. or things of that nature, now people, because cultures hijack some language, they're going to be set on edge or whatever. But I've found even with fundamentalists, I'm not even talking evangelical, but with mm-hmm. fundamentalists, Bible-thumping fundamentalists, that statement, hey, all we're trying to do is look like our mission field really helps to set people huh, um, wow. at ease. Yeah. So, can, can you tease out the differences really quick between diversity and unity, and what does unity actually look like in the context of ethnic ethnic unity? Um, yeah, that's a great question, Preston. So, the the Yoda in our in our kind of space is a woman, Jesus loving black woman named Corey Edwards. Okay. Uh, she's assistant professor of sociology at. The she would make me say the Ohio State University. Oh, yeah. I lived in Ohio. You're you're spot on there. Yeah, <laughs> so obnoxious man. But anyways, uh, um, she has been really really helpful. And one of the things she points out to answer your question is there are three different types of multi ethnic churches. At the most surface level, multi ethnic church. Um, well, I, I I need to even back up when we say multi ethnic church. We're not, we're not just being flippant with our language. We're talking about any church that meets the 80-20 rule, okay. right? And so no one ethnicity meets more than uh, 80%. Mm-hmm. And even those numbers are very specific. Uh, sociologists tell us that the 20% number is the minimal threshold where minorities feel heard, valued, and esteemed. Right? Oh, wow. So we, we could talk forever about that. Okay. So when we talk about multi-ethnic church, 80-20, um, recent study came out in January that since 1998, the multi-ethnic church in the evangelical space in America has actually tripled. Wow. So now we're up to about 22%. Right? Of, church, of evangelical churches would be considered multi-ethnic based on the 80-20. That's right. Wow. But, but 
Here's here's to answer your question really succinctly. Here's the problem. We're as divided as ever. Why? Because this stat shows us you can be diverse but not unified. Okay. Right. Yeah. And so what's what's happening now is Corey Edwards says there's three kinds of multi-ethnic churches at the most surface level is the multicolored multi-ethnic church. Okay. Think of the NBA All-Star game where you got people who show up from different teams. Mm -hmm. They play in the event. But when the event's over, they go back to their own teams. Got it. Right. So that's that's the multi-colored multi-ethnic church. You show up to the event on Sunday. You know, you do some program uh, programmatic things, but it doesn't really it really hasn't filtered down from the sanctuary to your dinner table mm. to how you live your life. The second level, I think, is the most dangerous church in America in a very bad way. It's the assimilated multi-ethnic church. It's multi-ethnic, but monocultural. Yeah. So here you have people who are sim who are assimilating into a very monocultural way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And I actually think, um, you know, there was a, a New York Times article that came out, I think it was 2016, somewhere in there called A Quiet Exodus, hmm. which talked about minorities leaving multi-ethnic churches in light of the predominant prevailing message of Donald Trump and not speaking truth to power and things of that nature. It actually may have been 2018. Mm -hmm. So that's really harmful. The third level is what you want. It's the integrated multi-ethnic church. And this is a multi-ethnic church where there is the laying down of personal preferences mm -hmm. and cultural norms for the good of others and the glory of God. It's the laying down of personal preferences and cultural norms. So there is no, this is the Acts 15 church, Preston. Yeah. So in Acts 15, the first church council actually dealt with the issues we're talking about. Because what's happening is Paul is planting these multi-ethnic churches, preaching the gospel. He leaves. Judaizers come behind him telling these new Gentile converts that in order to be saved, you, ha you have to act Jewish. Right. Right. So the church council convenes Acts 15. And what's their verdict? You don't have to act Jewish in order to be saved. In other words, what they said was when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, there is no ethnic home team. Hmm. So this is the third level. Hmm. So this is how, you know, you're not just diverse. You're living in ethnic unity. There is what I call an an equitable dissonance hmm. an equitable uh, disorientation and disequilibrium. Hmm. You know you're living in ethnic unity on the church level when everyone experiences at various points discomfort. If if there is one group who is pretty much always comfortable with the style uh, of music, with with the programming, with the length, with the way things are done. Mm -hmm you're not an ethnically unified church. Hmm. Ethnically unified churches, a, a indicator light is equitable discomfort. Okay. Right. Um, and I think what's, ha well, I can talk forever about this, but you know, even, even politically, hmm. um, if, if your political, um, proclivities are never being challenged mm -hmm. within the context of a local church, then you're not experiencing ethnic unity. Oh wow, that's I kind of want to stop and tweet that, but I'm I'm the I'm gonna 
I don't want to slow down the conversation. That's uh, uh, no, note to my audio engineer. Go ahead and grab that and spin somebody out of it. Um, in, in that th- the threefold increase since I think you said 1998, are you seeing that third level um, increasing that that it truly integrative ethnic unity, or are you seeing a lot of assimilation within that, or is it hard to kind of I mean, give a stat on, on that. Maybe more anecdotally yeah. as, you, as you explore different churches. and um. Yeah. The, um, the smell test would say when it's, it's not that third level. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not that at all. In fact, you know, I'm getting together with a, um, with a group of sociologists. We actually think so, – so that study came out January of 2021. That's when it was released. Mm-hmm. I actually think post-COVID mm-hmm. uh, that those numbers are going to drop mm-hmm. precipitously mm-hmm. Um, it, because we've all felt it, right? COVID yeah. was just this perfect storm of quarantine life. So now we're we're socially and relationally distant from each other, right? And, you know, Eric Mason says proximity breeds empathy, distance breeds suspicion. Oh, yeah. So yeah. when I'm not when I'm not relationally connected to you, I tend to think the worst of you. Yeah. Right. And then you pour on top of that George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. You have this huge cultural weight on top of the relational stuff. And that's not even including the health challenges and so many other right. emotional things that go along with that. So I actually think when the dust settles, we're going to be worse off yeah. uh, relationally across the ethnic divide. I, I do want to dive into this kind of area. The last couple of years, post-COVID, George Floyd, the integration between, well, the politicalization of everything, and that spilled over into divisions over CRT and all that stuff. And and uh, it's, it's a it's a... I mean, it's a mess, really. And I feel like it, it seems like Christians are thinking primarily through a political lens, not a... It, it's been hard enough to get them to read Ephesians, right, through the lens that we're talking about, which once you once you ask those questions about what is going on in this book ethnically, and then you go to many other passages, Galatians and Acts and all over the place, and you're like, oh, this is not some subsidiary theme. This is a gospel theme. Um, it's hard enough to get Christians to get there, but then now you add the politicalization of the race conversation. I, I don't even know if I have a question. I just want help. <laughs> I want yeah. you to like speak into maybe the church and, and how can we move forward with a Jesus satisfying, glorifying um, way of handling the race conversation um, w- without letting the political powers to be kind of dictate and shape our hearts in it. I, I don't right. know. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. 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 <laughs> you I, probably I know what I'm saying. dancing around. <laughs> yeah. No, this is actually what I'm, I'm wrestling with in my latest book that okay. I'm writing right now. Here's my argument in it. And, uh, I very much subscribe to what, uh, and you know, you, you've written, so maybe you can appreciate this. Um, one writer says, I write to figure out what I think about a topic, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. A, a lot of times people just think we, we come down with these refined thoughts, but I'm still wrestling with this. Mm-hmm. Here's my argument though. And I think it speaks to, to what you're, what you're asking. I think it's a fundamental, um, breakdown. I think it exposed, um, 
uh, our faulty disciple-making framework, Preston, mm-hmm. right? So my, my standard argument about COVID in general is um, COVID is a gift in some senses, and, and I want to be very careful for all, all of you who've had loved ones who've died. I want to be sensitive to that. But there there's some hidden gems in COVID because it was such a weight that whatever problems you had that may have been easily hidden, the weight of COVID just revealed all that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and especially relationally. Um, listen, you know, I'm used to traveling 100 to 150,000 miles a year. And, you know, COVID happens, all my travel gets shut down. And I remember sitting on the couch one evening about six weeks into COVID next to my wife going, oh, shoot, I don't have a lot to say to her. <laughs> and, bro, we yeah. it was an amazing, it was a hard but amazing year. Mm. We went to therapy. We worked it oh, out. Wow. I don't know if we would have ever tackled these issues that were hidden by flights hmm. if it wasn't for, for COVID, right? So I think COVID has revealed some problems. And one problem we have in the West is a faulty disciple-making framework. Hmm. And what I mean by that is discipleship in the West is primarily vertical, mm-hmm. right? It's it's me and my relationship with God. And I want to show you how to have a quiet time. I want to show you how to pray, how to share your faith, how to read your Bible. You and God's vertical. Mm-hmm. But remember, discipleship, the way we know it, is birthed out of the East, And the East is a lot more horizontal and communal and relational, Mm -hmm. right? So when Jesus comes to earth, first thing he does is I'm going to put a group together, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going to communally and relationally work these things out. And people are going to be very different in the group. You got Simon the Zealot, who's their version of the Taliban, uh, right next to, you know, uh, Levi the tax collector, (laughs) who in my context, we would have called him Uncle Tom's sellout. You know, you're collecting money from oppressed people to give to your oppressors. I mean, it's just it's just baffling. Well, I think the problem is we have not discipled well horizontally. Hmm. We have not discipled people into a new humanity. So what Paul does is when Jews and Greeks get saved, had he followed Donald McGavern and the church growth experts of the mid to late 20th century, he would have started two churches. Hmm. Let's start one on the north side of town for the Jews, one on the south side of town for the Gentiles. That's just the easy thing. Y'all don't get along. Let's be very pragmatic here. Mm-hmm. That's just how we roll. Paul says, I'm not doing this. I'm starting one church And I'm calling you to flesh out horizontally what God in Christ has already accomplished for you vertically, Mm. which is reconciliation. So the problem, at at least one of the problems, the way I see it, Preston, is it's not what we think about race or it's not what we think politically. It's the comment section. And you read the comment section on these posts and you go, man, we just don't know each other well. Right. Uh, we're, We're just not walking in relationships with others. Because, again, this whole idea of proximity breeding empathy, it's not that having a person of a different political view changes my political convictions, although at times it can. It now buffs off those hard, abrasive edges. Right. Mm -hmm. Same thing it did for me. I'll be honest with you, Preston. I am, you know, I think I emerged from seminary 
Um, my homophobia was never challenged in seminary. In some ways, it was entrenched. Hmm. What God used to buff that off in me is relationships. That's what God used. Um, What God is using to refine me is being married to a person who's completely different than me. Hmm. Hmm. Um, That is a means of grace. And that's why we need the ethnically other in our Hmm. life. Mm Right. It's yeah. a means of grace. Hey, friends, I want to invite you to come out to the Theology in the Raw conference next spring, uh, March 31st through April 2nd. It's here in Boise, or you can live stream it. Early bird registration ends on September 30th. Okay. So you get a discount if you register before September, well, before October 1st. Uh, if you're coming out to um, attend the conference live here in Boise. All the information is on my website, PressonSpringfield.com. Again, if you are planning on coming out, you definitely want to take, take advantage of the early bird registration, which is about to end. Mm-hmm. Right. It's yeah. a means of grace. So, um, I'm curious, like I often get the question when I, when I say similar things about multi-ethnicity in the church, you know, what, what do you do when you're in a context or, uh, a geographical context. I mean, I, I live in Boise, Idaho. We call it White Idaho, you know. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I mean, it, 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 yeah, it's 90, I want to say 92% white, Caucasian, maybe, or maybe 89%, maybe 7% Latino, which they live in a, a certain, typically there's a big popula- Latino population the further west you go from Boise. Um there's a decent refugee. We're one of the primary. We're one of the primary ref, refugee resettlement uh, cities. So we have, I think, twelve or fourteen thousand different refugees from about forty different countries. Um, so there's, it's not, it's, it's. There's, there's more diversity. Than I think people realize. Um, but what, yeah, what would you do? H- how can you meet the eighty twenty if your region is ninety ten? Um, is is your goal ninety ten then? But then you don't. You still have the danger of having a. a a dominant ethnicity and, and therefore a dominant culture. Or I guess, let me ask you one more follow. Sorry, ask too many questions at the same time. Is it still healthy for a 90-10 church that's 90-10 because their surrounding region is 90-10 to have a flavor that reflects more of a 50-50 or, you know, even if that, like they, they still don't, they're, they're, the church cult, the ecclesiological culture still doesn't, feel 90-10, if that, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, this is where I surprise pr- uh, people, Preston, because I, I don't think every church should be multi-ethnic. Uh, okay. I think every church is called to engage its Jerusalem, you okay. know, the, the, the concentric circles that Jesus kind of draws. You shall receive power, and mm-hmm. you know, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. Uh, at the end of the day, you got to love the one you're with, You've been planted literally, physically in a certain area. And I would say that's 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 what you need to do. Um, and so in your context, will you crack the 80-20 code? Probably not, because the environment doesn't lend itself towards okay. that. Um, are there things you can do? I, I think every church is called to have a presence both locally and beyond its local space, okay. right? So then you may likewise need to think of, through concentric circles. What is our uh, Judea, our Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, and maybe a church planting uh, missional engagement strategy that allows you to raise up, train, and unleash leaders uh, with a broader vision in mind. 
But I think this conversation is important um, because oftentimes, and I, and I wrote about this in my book a little bit, uh, Insider Outsider, oftentimes I think, I think the church planting movement and gentrification mm-hmm. are accomplices to a crime. Okay. In that we move into an area that is just changing and you've got great urban churches um, pastored by great urban leaders who have been there for a long time, but they get completely dismissed or ignored. Hmm. And all we want to do is to cater to the new demographic, hmm. right? I think I think that's problematic. So I think if you look around you, you'll probably find vestiges uh, of a community that existed long ago. And what does it look like to come alongside of them and to learn from them and and things of that nature? Um, you know, I I, I I do think even beyond the church conversation, um, I, I do think for our own growth, there's just something about submitting to being discipled by being formed by people who are just different. And in our context, ethnic difference. Okay. So Reggie Williams, a uh, scholar out of Fuller he wrote a book called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. And it's a fascinating tale. I think it's, it's, it's actual his PhD dissertation. Um, and he tells the story of how Bonhoeffer at the age of 21, as we know, he's a prodigy gets his PhD crazy young, but then comes to in in the 1930s comes to Harlem Mm -hmm. to study at union, which is a part of Columbia university. Bonhoeffer says, at the time, I thought I was saved, probably wasn't saved, but because I thought I was saved, I was looking for churches that would kind of preach the gospel. He says, I couldn't find him among the white churches. So he joins the Abyssinian Baptist Church, a legendary historic black Baptist church that's still still around today. In fact, if you've um, the godfather of Harlem, one of my guilty pleasures, it's a a television show. The pastor, Adam Clayton Powell, um, his father was Bonhoeffer's pastor. So Bonhoeffer follows black leadership, immerses himself in the black church, teaches uh, a black Sunday school class, befriends a guy named Albert who takes him on a trip to the Jim Crow South, introduces him to Negro spirituals, which Bonhoeffer will take back to. Anyways, Hmm. Bonhoeffer says this, I don't go back and stand up for the oppressed, marginalized Jews without first hearing the gospel to the oppressed in that black church. Bonhoeffer is just a testament to what shaped and formed me was relationships with the ethnically other. And again, I think for the good of our own soul, even if our community doesn't provide that, I, I guarantee you there's some older ethnically other men and women who you would be wise to just sit at their feet and learn from. Mm, mm. That's so good. I remember hearing bits and pieces of that yeah, story of the bond. I don't know where I heard it, but that's yeah, that's fascinating. So that so that experienced, he would say he was the engine driving what he ended up later on doing with the Jews and wow. Absolutely. Because yeah. remember, you know, all this madness is going on and Bonhoeffer's here in America. Where, <laughs> where compared to where he's from, this is easy street over here, yeah. right? Yeah. But being immersed as a minority in a majority black yeah. context and seeing yeah. the oppression, just God used that yeah. to form him. Brian, I, how, this would be another one that's hard to formulate. How would you help 
I'm going to create a fictitious per- person that's, well, it's more of a composite kind of person. They're, they're a, a white, politically, let's just say conservative um, uh, Christian who, um, you know, thinks like, hey, we elected a black president. Um, we, you know, since what, 1964, blatant, I guess, racism is illegal. Redlining is not, is gonna, you know, it's not a thing or whatever. And like, I think we're doing pretty good on the race conversation. Why, why are there so many protests? And I'm being accused of being a racist because I'm part of the white system and people are, and then they read a little bit about CRT or maybe somebody's interpretation of CRT and like, wow, I don't like that. And um, h- how do you help that person who feels like they don't have any, I don't have any bones with anybody. I, I, don't, I'm, I don't feel like I'm a racist at all. Um, and yeah, I'm being told that I'm, you know, I am a racist, you know, I, I, I don't think I am <laughs> like, how do you help them understand maybe some of the more complexity of the race, um, conversation? Does that, does that make sense? And do you feel like that is a common kind of person that you come across? Um, oh yeah, for sure. Right. Um, and it's nuanced. So I want to be careful, you know, we've made huge legislative gains, right? Um, huge. Um, you know, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act. I mean, these are huge, incredible opportunities from a governmental perspective um, that's really come our way. But you got to also remember, though, the other side of it is so when Brown versus Board of Education happens mm-hmm. in 1954, right, probably the most Supreme Court consequentially, uh, on the good side of things, uh, the best Supreme Court decision of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But the Christian community in the South, the way they reacted was, okay, um, but our kids still aren't going to go to those schools. So what we'll do is we'll start our own schools and price them out, right? And so most Christian schools down South um, started between 1954 and the mid-70s are started as an alternative to government-mandated integration. Oh, wow. Yes. So I've that, asked for Memphis. So that, that is something where it's not uh, – that bypasses beyond the legislation kind of conversation. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Because what they did was they made it – they made the threshold economics – and they played to the economic wealth gap and just said, okay. we're going to price out the undesirables, right? Um, and so in some way, shape, or form, that still exists today. So the the economic disparities, you know, the wealth gap has not decreased. Um, in some statistics, it says it's actually increased. Um, and so the, the disparities are still there. I want to be very nuanced in this conversation, right? Because what what's informing me is a biblical vision mm-hmm. and a yep. biblical worldview. Um, people bristle when I say this. I don't like the phrase "white privilege," okay, because it demonizes privilege for the sake of privilege, right? Okay. Um, so if privilege was was a problem, if privilege is innately bad, then Jesus Christ is innately but innately bad. No one came to earth more privileged than Jesus. Mm-hmm. Philippians 2, that great kenosis passage, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that though he was in the form of God, right? He came as God encased in flesh. You talk about privilege, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I don't think the issue is privilege. I think it's the stewardship okay. of privilege, right? So listen, is there an advantage to being white um, in America in 2021? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all seen the studies, right, that uh, two individuals apply for the same job same exact resume, Mm -hmm. but one is named Heidi and the other is named Keisha. Mm -hmm. Heidi, by the numbers, is way more likely to get the job than Keisha. Mm -hmm. What do you call that? You got to call that something, right? And there's all of the kinds of markers that, that we could use. But I think what critical race theory does with this binary And again, it's nuanced. There's part of critical race theory that's great. People forget that critical race theory kind of really uh, comes to the fore uh, in the years after the civil rights movement in the legal realm Mm -hmm. because we're going, wait a minute, there's some promises that were made uh, in legislation that our communities are not reaping the benefit of. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you saw N.T. Wright's letter that he wrote, a little short letter. Yeah. He's... He said, in essence, secular ideologies, he didn't mention critical race theory, but secular ideologies, I'll add, like critical race theory, have gained a foothold because the the church didn't preach a gospel, didn't preach or practice a gospel big enough to address these issues, right? So I think if the church just lived Acts 2, for example, if we just lived that, (laughs) critical race theory is not an issue at all. Right. Um, And so but I I, got to be careful here because this binary and then we get into intersectionality where the more categories of oppression, the more boxes I check, kind of the more benefits I get, the more virtuous I seem. That's incongruent with a biblical vision. Right. Right. So so I'm real careful to kind of. Just say there's some good things here, but there's some bad things here as well. And that what we have to understand is that race isn't fundamentally a governmental issue. It's fundamentally a heart issue that is still manifesting itself in different ways. And we've got to be able to speak to that. Now, what we've done as the Church of Jesus Christ is we've put all of our eggs in the governmental basket. Right. When a biblical vision says God has a three-pronged strategy for dealing with sin and providing human flourishing outside of the cross, it's the three institutions in order. It's the family, the government, and church. What we've done is we've, we want to put everything in a government box, mm-hmm. and that's not the case. It, it, it all begins with the family. And again, this vision of discipleship in the family, where what I have to do as a parent is I have to disciple my kids with a robust discipleship where I'm not only, um, you know, uh, teaching them how to have a quiet time, but I'm giving them a robust anthropology and, and a vision of the Imago Dei. Hmm. Right. <laughs> Uh, that's got to start in my home where I'm nipping racism in the bud. So when George Floyd happens and I'm looking at one of my sons, true story, who is in a rage and he's saying all white people are Mm. bad. And I'm saying, well, let me stop you there. 
What about Uncle Adam, Aunt Nikki? What about Uncle Bobby, Aunt Heather? White, Jesus-loving people who we do life with, mm. right? What is, what is that? It's me taking ownership as a dad and nipping this in the bud, right? Mm. And so I've got to give them that, that vision. There's the governmental piece. We get that. But government can change laws. It can't change hearts. Yeah. This is where the Church of Jesus Christ steps in. And not only do we provide the answer to the heart, which is seen in the New Covenant, mm. But it should be the church that is on the front lines helping the marginalized, Mm -hmm. giving a great vision for the poor and disenfranchised. It should be the church. And instead, I think the critical race theory conversation, we've now taken steps back. That's so sad. I mean, so you feel like if um, the the division that is happening in Christianity along political lines, along racial conversations and where you stand on CRT and all that, like all of that wouldn't, we, we, (laughs) that wouldn't have disrupted the church if we were already doing what we should have been doing in the race conversation in the, in the church, that, that genuine, you know, ethnic reconciliation and, and, you know, cause I guess that's, uh, it, it, it frustrates me, but I can only imagine how frustrating it would be for people of color, black Christians in particular, when all of a sudden the, the only time white evangelicals are sp- speaking up is in an anti-CRT. You know, it's like, wait, where have you been? <laughs> where have you been the last 30 years? Like, now you want to talk about yeah, race? You know, like, is that... <laughs> Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that drives me nuts. I, I just said this the other night. I was preaching at a conference. You know, I, I never hear from you on justice. Right. Right. Never hear from you. But now you just can't shut up about critical race theory. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You know, you guys tied mint and cumin. Mm-hmm but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And he uses the J word justice. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think it was Randy Alcorn who pointed out there's over 2,350 verses in the Bible that speaks to God's heart for the orphan, the immigrant, the widow, the poor yeah. over yeah. 2,350 verses. And I, I think I I've got to be able to flesh that out and we've got to be able to talk about these things as the church without without being politicized. And that's the problem, Preston. I think everything's politicized. We've allowed Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon to disciple us more than Jesus. <laughs> and I think that's that's the yeah. fundamental issue that we're having to deal with right now and that we're, we're wrestling with. Hey, friends, I hope you're enjoying the content so far. And if you've been challenged, blessed, or cursed by Theology in the Raw, would you consider supporting the show for as little as five bucks a month through Patreon. This is a listener supported show. You can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw and you get access to premium content like uh, monthly Patreon only podcasts that I do. Lots of, we do lots of Q and a conversations through the Patreon only community. Uh, I also write a once a month blog for my supporters and you get cool things like discounts on, I don't know, the theology in the raw uh, conference that's happening next spring. If you're a Patreon supporter, you get um, some significant price cuts to the ticket price for that conference. And there's many other perks that come up. So again, patreon.com forward slash theology and raw. All the info is in the show notes that we're having to deal with right now. And that we're, we're wrestling with is that that's been my hunch is that media outlets on the left or the right, which have become so polarized now, 
Um, I mean, if I, if in my more cynical moments, I think, I don't know if it's cynicism or just truth, but like, you know, views are down, they're losing money. They need to clickbait titles. Psychological studies have shown over and over that if you ignite the anger and get people enraged, then they're going to read, read, read and click on ads. Like there's so much, you don't want to talk about power and money, you know, driving this whole machine. And yet it does seem like Christians are just bathing in this stuff. And I I would say it's a problem on both sides. And I'm glad you, oh, you, sure. you listen to sure. two on the right, two on the left. And, and I'm like, yeah, cause right. I'm, I'm fairly apolitical in, in, in many ways. And so I do, I, I try to listen to both sides, you know, and I'm like, man, both sides are need. I have to listen to both sides because I'm, one, right. I'm getting one narrative from this side, one narrative from the other, and it's just not helpful. Um, right. And, Oh, I was going somewhere with this. Um, yeah. So do you feel like, and I guess you've kind of already said it, but that in the last couple of years, that political lens that's been highly polarized, that many Christians are being discipled through has just made the actual, the, the, the race conversation that we should be having incredibly difficult because all they hear is CRT. They hear this and that on both sides. And, and, they're, and they're, they're so bathed in more of the secular conversation, which is important. And I don't want to separate the two. But like, if I start talking about, yeah, social justice or ethnic reconciliation or, hey, you know, we should have more diversity so that we can have more integrative, you know, ethnic unity. Like people are just going to, antennas are going to go up. Wait, is this critical race theory? You know, like, I'm not even talking about that. Like, what if I didn't, it's not even about that. Um, I don't know. How, how do you disciple well, people out of that? Like, when you go into a church, that's like, you feel the tension. You got, you know, the, the, the pro-Trumpers, anti-Trumpers and everybody, you know, yep. uh, how do you, what do you, how do you speak to them in that? Well, so, I mean, to answer your earlier question, I think as far as just this, it just feels the, the most divisive it's ever felt in my lifetime. Okay. Right. And wow. you kind of go, what is that? I think one of the reasons, and there's many, one of the reasons I think is the blessing of Trump, and that is the I blessing think Trump, of Trump. Okay. Yes, I think I think I think Trump gave people. See, I think the division was always there. Yeah. What Trump did was he gave people freedom to express it. Mm. Like he gave people just the green light by his own example. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say what I think. Um, I know it'll tick you off. Uh, but this is boom, 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 boom. And I think people got that green light on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Trumpers just going, all right, boom. Uh, and the rhetoric just went up to a whole nother level that never existed from a mm-hmm. rhetoric standpoint before. But it was always in the heart. Like like we we felt these things. We just the political incorrectness of Donald Trump gave a collective freedom to be politically incorrect. So I don't know if we're literally more divided than we've ever been. Um, I know that verbally we are because now there's just this huge freedom. And this is why to answer your your follow-up question, I think the reason why I'm really hopeful for working these things out in evangelical spaces is that the assumption with evangelicals, the assumption, is our starting place is the Bible. 
like if you can show it to me in the Bible, right? That's not where the culture is, of course. The, the culture, they look inward um, for meaning in life. Evangelicals say, no, no, no. Meaning in life is found outside of yourself, in the scriptures, in a relationship with God, so on and so forth. So if I can show you Ephesians 2, and even before that, take you through an expository methodology of teaching the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, I don't even think I can get up today and just do a topical thing on race, and it'll yield a lot of fruit, Okay, right? Which, case in point, uh, Preston, here's what drives me nuts in my world. Second Sunday of the year in January is Sanctity of Life Sunday. I can't tell you how many times I got up and I just preached the scriptures and made a case for why we should fight for life in the womb. Hmm. And in evangelical circles, it's amen. You know, they're wanting to buy me dinner, wanting to give me a raise the whole night. <laughs> the next Sunday, and Matt, Matt Chandler and I talk about this all the time. It's, it's a perfect bookend because the next Sunday is typically MLK weekend. Oh, uh, nice. Right? Yeah. And so that's, that's where I do a message on life outside the womb. Huh. And we might talk about a vision for ethnic unity. Every single time I'll have people get up and walk out. I'll be called a social justice warrior. I'll get emails. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where was that last week? Right, but six but years ago, six years ago, you wouldn't have had that happen, right? Because those categories weren't so volatile. Like you could have said, or I still would have had it happen. It would have been significantly less pushback. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think the pushback goes all the way up. But my point is, that's when you take a topical approach. You're yeah. better served now just going, "Hey, we're just going to walk through Ephesians in chapter one, adoption, foreknowledge, election." Yes, chapter two. Oh my. Mm -hmm. Look at what Paul does here. And I think that's better received, again, because the assumption is if I can show it to you in the text, yeah. right? So that's that's how I would start to make our way here. Um, and then just letting people know it, this is a value of our church. That's what we did in Memphis. Hey, we're a gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic church. And you're going to hear about this in the new members class. This is what you're signing up for. We're not going to bait and switch you. This is what we're about. Okay. We're intentionally going to gather leaders together at this church who are ethnically different. Yeah. Um, you know, these are things that we're, we, we want you to go on this journey with us. I, I just got a couple more minutes, uh, two more minutes. But uh, can you give us a quick snapshot of how things are going at Summit? I know you're pretty new there. It's, I mean, North Carolina is a as you said, is a diverse area. Um, what are your what, what are your hopes and dreams over the next few years that take place? There? Like, what are the things that you guys are moving towards in this conversation? Yeah, so Summit's about a twelve thousand person church, and about three years ago, JD stood up before the congregation and just said, "Look, man, there's a vision that we have here. We want to be twenty five percent minority by twenty twenty five." And by his own words, he says that that was a conservative number because, again, the actual numbers are fifty six forty four. Right. Um, and but he just felt like, man. Um, I just have a heart. We're, we're only reaching a part of the triangle. We're not reaching mm. as much of the triangle that God would have us to reach. So this whole idea of missiology driving things. And God's been gracious to this church since then. Mm. Um, I don't know what the exact numbers were, 
but they were on the uptick. And then right before COVID, we were right at 19% minority, which, you know, we're yeah. about to crack that 80-20 thing. Yeah. Um, and we're running the numbers again in a couple of months to see exactly where we're at. Because I do think we've fell back a little bit um, ever since COVID, ever since COVID started. So okay. that's the vision. Um, and they're putting their money where their mouth is. I mean, they've hired me. Uh, they understand that, um, you know, the pulpit's a powerful place. So having minority representation mm-hmm. on a consistent substantive yeah. level, uh, has been huge. Um, there's a commitment to hiring well-qualified minority staff uh, where it makes sense uh, and growing in that direction. So we're very much in process. In fact, we're kicking off a podcast called the Summit Church's Kainos podcast, yeah, 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 which is a pastoral podcast in real time about how we're trying to flesh these things out with the hopes that uh, People who eavesdrop in on the conversation will glean some nuggets for how to do it in their own context. So we haven't arrived. We're very much in process, and we're very much hopeful. Brian, thanks so much for your wisdom and your grace and for being on Theology and Raw. Uh, BrianLaritz.com, is that right? Uh, I was just on your website. Bunch of books you guys got to check out. The first one, I I think I first heard your name through the Cross-Shaped Gospel. No, I heard your name before that, but that was the one that always stands out, Cross-Shaped Gospel. And you've written... How many books? I mean, uh, quite a few. I saw seven. Okay, I've cool. Seven. Yeah. yeah. So uh, thanks so much, man. Keep keep up the great work, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Preston. Enjoyed it.